Hi, I'm Christine Murray, and welcome to the Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make places worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings more than the buildings themselves. Hi, uh, my name is Barry Jessup. I'm the Managing Director of Socius. Um, Socius is a mixed-use placemaker. Um, we're a relatively young company, but the team at Socius has had a very long time together working previously for a company called First Base. So we are the, we have ta- effectively taken the development team out of First Base and set up a new company. Um, we're very much focused on urban city centre locations, always brownfield, never greenfield, and very much mixed use. And that's that's a genuine mix of offices, residential, senior living, student bars, restaurants, cafes to create really, really interesting places. Uh, We see ourselves as not just a developer, but an enabler and a curator. And we can perhaps talk about that a little bit later. Um, uh, But as a business, effectively, it's the same team as we had previously with the same projects and the same uh, the same investors, but hopefully with an opportunity to double down on some of the things that we feel really passionate about, uh, certainly on the ESG um, agenda. Um, and one of the things we've done to, to enable us to do that is to effectively to set ourselves up as a, a B corporation, um, which perhaps we can talk about more in the moment. It'd be good to hear about that. I think the, the you know, this decision, you kind of bill yourself as a, a social impact developer, you are on that B Corp journey. Is that, you know, a statement um, kind of in contrast to the rest of the property industry? Or do you see this as a wider move towards it? And why have you decided to kind of set out your stall in that way? I think, I think so I was involved in the setting up of First Base 20 years ago, and we always set ourselves up as a developer at the time. The, the language at the time was sort of triple bottom line. Uh, and what we meant by that was that you, know, you could achieve those strong environmental targets, you could achieve strong social value aspirations and still make a profit. And we are in this to make a profit, but we don't think that's mutually exclusive with achieving you know, the, uh, the other goals that we've set out. And I think with the uh, with the new company, we had an opportunity to make that commitment public. So uh, under the B Corporation um, um, proposal that we're, that we're moving towards, you know, we are committed not only to our shareholders within the articles of our company, but also to external stakeholders and to the environment. It is a fiduciary commitment we have made within our company's constitution to make sure we're targeting all three of those aspects. And why are we doing it? Well, one, because we think it's the right thing to do, that's perhaps the most importantly. Um, secondly, because we know that our staff and all the team are absolutely passionate about this. We talk about it every day. So it, it's, you know, for, from a commercial perspective, it's really important for me to be able to attract the right talent and to retain the talent because it's something that I think um, everybody is very much interested in. But no, but candidly, it is also of commercial benefit because what's really, really encouraging for me is we're seeing the investment market re- really move towards us. And whereas perhaps... 20 years ago, we sometimes felt like we were swimming against the tide. It feels now as if the tide has come in and is, 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 at, is at our back. And that's that's really exciting. Elide, I'm going to bring you in here to introduce yourself. I mean, we've already used this term ESG for people who aren't familiar with it. What is it and why is it of interest in the market right now? So my name is Elida Abo. I'm one of the directors of Socius. And, and I'm really excited about... Um, the uh, proposition actually, because I think 
as an industry, um, we focus on development and we're, our language and everything we talk about is usually about the physical building. Um, and I think sometimes we forget that the most important part of the physical building is the people who actually occupy those buildings. And I think that's where our starting point is. Taking a real people-centered approach to development means that our focus has to be and always starts with how do we make sure we are, how do we make sure that we are delivering impact and delivering long, improving long-term life chance for the people who are going to live, work, or play in the places we create. So that our, that that's where we, that's where our starting point is. Hence why we focus on B Corp. We're, hence why we look we focus on ESG, we focus on sustainability, we focus on social value. We can't not do that. If you take a people-centered approach to development, you have to look at that. And I think it really does help in terms of how you engage with your the communities that you're you're developing in. Because you can genuinely talk about this is not just about how big or how tall or how wide or how purple, how orange this building is going to be. It's really about the people who are going to be in there and how their lives can be positively impacted for the long term. So there are so many people involved in kind of inner city mixed use regeneration projects. You've got, you know, the developer, you've got the investment money behind it. We've talked about, you know, this kind of the environmental, social and, and governance investment and that, that growth, but then all the way through that chain of command right down to the people. So, you know, how far does that go when you're looking to, to work with consultants or partners, you know, if you, you've aligned in that way and, and what, what are your, do you have criteria or set, um, parameters for the people that you work with and, and what are your approaches to, to driving that purpose all the way down the chain? So I, I think we see, see ourselves as having a role both as a, an enabler but also as an encourager, if you want to call it that. And I think uh, we've stopped short at the moment of sort of making absolute, having absolute insistence on our consultants to behave in certain ways, but we're definitely there to encourage them to do so. And we tend to partner up with businesses who are like-minded. So, uh, you know, one of our investors is, is, is Patreon Capital and they have a very strong social agenda uh, as well as a financial one. And I think that's really important to us. But equally, when we then select our architects and professional team, it's really important they share those values with us. I think it's fair to say that um, there's still a long way to go in, in terms of embedding that within um, people's behaviour. Uh, um, but we see our role as very, very much uh, uh, um, an encouraging one. And, and, you know, and ultimately, if we don't see enough progress, we'll move from encouraging to enforcing to a certain extent, certainly within the, within the confines of what, what we can control. We also know that local authorities are, are, are very strong um, on on these these aspects as well. So, uh, no, if you look at the, the locations we're currently working in, you know, Brighton, Bristol, Milton Keynes, Cambridge, places like that, are right at the forefront of of you know action against climate emergency. Um, they they really understand the social issues they have in their in their cities, whether that's you know homelessness or, or, or sort of educational issues and, and uh, health and wellness and, and all those sorts of things. So it, it, we, we tend to find that we can there is a listening ear when we put forward our proposition and when they understand you know, that we're we are committed not just to the short-term building of buildings, which is what Elida was talking about, but the creation of long-term communities that you know can thrive once we do move on. I know community engagement and the way you do community engagement is something that we've talked about in the past, Elida, but I think 
it would be interesting to hear from you now, you know, how, how do you as a developer um, you know, involve communities in the, from the outset um, in these projects, in these places? I suppose the first thing to say is we, we believe that having a variety and a diverse amount, number of voices involved in our project we find that really helpful you know we don't see you know so we genuinely take the time to listen so we believe we're going we're going, going into places early building really important relationships and building trust with people from all walks of life you know that's local residents businesses you know the local schools the local you know community centers health centers and having conversations about things that about your area because as barry said we, we have a lifespan in those in places we work in. You know, we're probably developing for a period of five to seven years, but actually people who live or work there are going to be there for much longer than us and have spent much longer time in those places. So actually what their ambitions and aspirations and needs and issues and concerns are, are really helped for us to better understand. And we do that on a very kind of informal basis, but we also go through a very formalized process where we work with social value portal to really document those things down and set a bit of a baseline for where things are. But we think that interaction is really helpful because it helps us in terms of understanding what the need is, not just from a physical design perspective, but also from a, what does a community want to do? How does a community work well together? And what does that, what does community mean in this area? As Barry said, what's what Bristol needs is very different to what Cambridge needs, to very different to what Milton Keynes needs. So we don't have that cut and paste approach or cookie cutter approach. We've got to really, you know, walk the streets, speak to people and understand what those needs are. And, and I, I, gen, I love that. And all of our team are really invested in that. We go out and we spend time, and that all that information is fed through to our processes. So we better understand actually, you know, what, what does the physical design need to do to support some of these challenges that the local community have, has raised? Or what kind of community space do we need to start to think about providing that will help address some of these longer term ambitions that the, that the area needs? So for us, that listening exercise is critical. We don't take it for granted. We spend a lot of time on it and spend a lot of resource on it to really make sure we do that properly. We're here to talk about Milton Keynes. You guys are working in Milton mm -hmm. Keynes. So I would ask you to take us on a little journey to your site, you know, the, or take, take us to, to visit this place, um, the wider place for people who aren't familiar with Milton Keynes, the kind of um, way that it was developed. It just might be interesting to kind of have that context and then understand a bit about the work that you're gonna be doing there. So, so Milton Keynes is, is interesting. It's a location that I think nearly everybody has heard of, but it's amazing how many people have never visited. And if you haven't visited Milton Keynes, it is almost unique in a UK context. Um, we, we have um, a lot of sort of investors and stakeholders who, who we take to various places around the UK, and they're always slightly taken aback when they arrive at Milton Keynes because it feels much more almost North American, perhaps, than it does than it does traditional European or English, because it is a very young, I was going to say city. It's actually strictly still a town. It will be a city soon. It has one of the highest growth rates in the UK, um, and it has all of the attributes of a city. And it will be a city soon. But it's it's um, it's very youthful, and I think the the mixture of uses that it has sort of reflects that. So it's very much a planned city. I'm going to call it city from here on in. Um, it's um, it's very planned. It has it's famous for its roundabouts and it's very organised. Um, sort of transportation system 
So, so Milton Keynes has been criticised in the past because of its uh, some, the perception of its sort of quite structured transportation system with roundabouts, etc. What's interesting, however, for me is that that suddenly looks going into sort of 2023 and beyond with the advent of, of drone deliveries and autonomous vehicles, it looks genius in lots of ways because it's going to allow the fast tracking of a lot of that technology. So it's a youthful city, I think, with, the, with a youthful purpose uh, and with a whole series of local attributes that are youthful. I'm going to keep using that phrase because I think it's really relevant to, to Milton Keynes. Now, for example, it has one of the best um, uh, sort of ski and snow dome locations in, in, in the UK. It has fantastic green uh, open spaces. And it's one of those cities that has really thrived on the back of the pandemic, um, where people want access to space. Uh, they don't necessarily want to be spending as much time commuting as they did before. Um, and they are looking to work closer to their homes. Uh, and I think Milton Keynes is, is a location that can both um, accept the growth that is happening there in terms of population growth, but all, could also build on the very strong blocks that have been created there over the last 50 years uh, and attract new workplaces, new homes, and new leisure activity. So it's, it was really exciting for us as a city. Uh, and we've really enjoyed working with the local authority there who I think share all of those exciting features as well. So we were really encouraged and you know, welcomed. Uh, we're actually working on a site in particular called Saxon Court um, that used to be the home of um, MK Council um, and has for what is a young city, a long history um, um, of, uh, of experience in, in, in Milton Keynes. So we're working very closely with the council. We've, we've developed up a scheme there, which I think they'll be very proud of. You talk about this um, autonomous vehicles and drones, and it, it's, it's a slightly different conversation than the one going on about 15 minute cities and walking and cycling. Is there an active travel plan for Milton Keynes that's also built into this? Or is it more that it requires a different approach because it was um, laid in a different kind of infrastructure? I actually think it addresses and achieves both. So uh, we haven't started to talk about our development yet. We'll talk about that in a moment. But we've very much taken a sort of 15 minute or even a five minute city approach to the design of our scheme. It's, it's a genuine mixed use scheme. It has a large office uh, that is building on the existing office there. So we're retaining the existing structure and thereby saving you know, a lot of carbon uh, by not replacing a lot of that. We're also building a new 33-story res residential tower, which we'll talk about in a moment as well. And then bars, restaurants, some greater maker space, public squares, fantastic uh, atrium um, that people will have access to. So a lot of features there. And what that enables us to do is, is to, to allow people to work, live and play all in the same location. Bit of a cliche, but in this case, it really is, it really is true. Um, and so we've achieved that five minute city uh, sort of uh, aspect, but equally people want connectivity to the surrounding areas. And one of the reasons um, we very much focus on city centres and MK is a good example of that is because, you know, frankly, transportation is one of the big issues you have uh, in terms of sustainability. So the ability to reduce the ability to reduce transport in the first place 
is the need for transport is is really helpful. The ability then to replace traditional transport, i.e., you know, these owned cars, um, with potentially um, um, uh, autonomous vehicles that can be shared by everybody, I think enables and it all run of, of course on on electricity um, enables a much more sustainable long term environmental approach to, to to take place in these locations. Is the autonomous vehicle thing something that the council is working towards in Milton Keynes, or is this uh, your kind of prediction? Is there a plan for a trial of that technology? So, so the council has been really innovative and forward thinking, actually. What they have done is they have worked on a project called MK5G, where they've rolled out 5G across the whole public realm. And 5G has enabled and has brought forward a number of companies who want to test their technology using 5G. One, one of those being autonomous vehicles, because it just it reduces the latency, it's quicker for you to roll out, um, and they're testing it and utilizing it today. You know, if you go to Milton Keynes now, you see Starship robots up and down the city delivering um, food to people. You can order your coffee, and it literally arrives in a robot. Um, they have been testing con connecting autonomous vehicles across the public realm, um, and it's currently live. It's, it's, it's in progress. It's happening today. And I think that's Milton Keynes. Milton Keynes is really focused on future mobility. How can we start to look at future ways of moving around our cities? And as a business, we we, we are very keen to, to, to trial new things and to provide testing opportunities. So we're really connected to MK5G because we think it's a great opportunity to be part of thinking about how we move around our cities in the future. Really exciting to hear that kind of um, risk of, you know, risk taking or what might be perceived as risk taking uh, in what can be um, a risk averse approach to development in other places. Is that uh, something that you also look for when you're looking for sites and places? Are you looking for councils that are willing to, to try new things or is it just, is it just a bit of luck <laughs> in Milton Keynes? No, no, we, we, we get very frustrated, I think, um, in locations where uh, innovation is frowned upon. It, it seems crazy to me. I mean, the, the real estate sector more generally is is you know, fairly archaic in the way that it approaches a lot of things that it does. You know, the construction industry really hasn't moved in about 120 years. Uh, we're still building buildings very similar to the way that we were at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and it, that's very frustrating for us. And, uh, and whenever we find the local authority that's keen to embrace uh, innovation and change, we get very excited and uh, Milton Keynes definitely fall into that category and one of the things we did for our scheme here was was we was the selection of our architects so we, we brought in RSHP um, for what I believe is their only scheme outside of central London um, and um, they were they've been incredible uh, as, as an architectural practice in in helping us to uh, visualize and bring to life a really exciting scheme and I think everybody in, in Milton Keynes and certainly the, the planning authority was delighted with the scale of the ambition in fact we've been encouraged to be as ambitious as possible so uh, we, we don't need to be asked twice uh, um, to sort of you know to uh, um, to try new things um, to uh, to try and innovate to improve and, and that that can be both on uh, the design, so we'll talk a little bit perhaps in a moment about the design of the buildings that we do some really unusual and innovative things within the residential block, but also on the environment, environmental side, one of the reasons we're so passionate about mixed use is the ability to genuinely, genuinely address 
energy usage. It's much more efficient to have mixed use schemes where you know you have different energy peaks at different times of the day or the week. And so there's an ability there to to, to make sure that, that the scheme is much more efficient going forward. But equally, I'm a massive believer this country is very short on land. We're not building any more land. We need to make sure we use land very efficiently. And most the traditional approach to to development tends to be very inefficient. You know, we only use office space well pre-pandemic, it was only about 37% of the time. It's significantly less than that at the moment. Um, it's the same for residential and, and retail. So the ability to bring forward land and space and use it in a more efficient way to create a really exciting dynamic is one of the great benefits, I think, of, of mixed use development. I wanna zoom in on that um, idea of mixed use and maybe using this project as an example. I mean, you, you do describe yourselves as mixed use developers, your belief that, that development should include these kind of various um, components in order to make it kind of an active, vibrant, livable place. What are your secret ingredients? If you have any, does that change depending on where you are or do you have kind of, uh, it should be, um, X percentage of this and Y percentage of that, and uh, you know, and and do you think that that perception has changed at all um, through uh, changes that we've seen post COVID in terms of work and life? You know, are you feeling like your your hunches are being borne out by the direction of travel, or actually, how are you saying we need to reevaluate these certain aspects of um, the way that we do things? I, th I think the fundamentals of proper mixed-use development haven't changed. Um, I, I would find it, uh, one of the questions I always like to ask people is where their favourite locations are, or their favourite places are in the world, and those are very rarely mono-use locations. They're very rarely a sort of an, an office park or a, or, or a housing estate or even a shopping centre. They tend to be mixed use locations because that's where you get a vibrancy and a uh, and a sense of excitement and curiosity um, that perhaps you don't get in mono-use developments um, so that hasn't changed I, I think probably um, people are more aware of that perhaps in a post-covid environment where people have had a lot of time to reflect you know where they live and where they work and their commute and, and and all those sorts of things and so I think there's it, it has become more people are more aware of their environment perhaps than they were before and they're more discerning perhaps in where they choose to spend their time um, so I, I don't think that has, that has changed um, but for me it, it's just fundamental to, to the way that we all want to live we want that vibrancy we want those we want to create those collisions you know those curiosity points you know those you know, not quite knowing What's going to happen? Our office is in uh, is in Central Soho. One of the, one of the things I love about Soho is if you jump out of the tube here and walk to our office, you never quite know what you're going to see or who you're going to bump into on the way to and from the office, and that's great because I think it's barely a day that goes by where I'm not inspired by something I see on the way to the office. It gives me an idea for something we should be doing or something we should be changing uh, or trying to change within our business or within our projects and um, uh, I think mixed use environments create far more opportunity for those collision points than the mono use. So zooming into MK Gateway can you tell me a little bit more about what's happening there and what that's going to be like? So MK Gateway as I, as I mentioned previously is, is a 
proper mixed use development. So what we're doing is we're taking an existing office building, we're retaining the, the, the structure, um, saving lots of carbon by doing that. We're extending it, and as I mentioned previously, it's a RSHP office, so it's stunning in its design. It's based around a really uh, large internal atrium um, with um, a series of interlinking uh, stairways that, that allow you effectively to see the whole building from the center of the building, but equally to have your own entrance to your individual floors. So we think it's really exciting from an office proposition. And it's based around a ground floor that we're designing to, to really encourage um, social impact. Uh, um, so we're intending to have a, a flexible office uh, workspace on the ground floor with a series of bars, cafes, etc., and, and giving people access to services that will allow them to maximise the amount of social impact they can have as a business, because we know that is a key driver for a lot of corporates going forward. And then sat alongside that um, new refurbished office, we have a 33-storey residential tower. And I think what makes that unique is our approach to trying to recreate the garden fence moment within the residential scheme. So what we've actually designed there with, with RSHP are effectively triple height external atriums every three floors. So if you can imagine if you go up the tower, you have this wonderful triple height space um, um, that is open to the elements, um, that does have a glass balustrade that is uh, allows the um, um, uh, um, some weather protection, but we've designed them so they can be used 300 days a year. And they are accessible by the three floors uh, um, that, that, that um, of residential units. So that, that means you have 24 residential units all opening up onto that space. Um, and you have therefore probably around 50 to 60 residents who will start to um, own that space and turn it into their own private uh, um, communal space, if you want to call it that. And, and we've done that deliberately because one of the challenges with mixed use development and high density development, which is to where we tend to specialize, is that you can create loneliness. Uh, and it's quite hard to create new communities. And by actually breaking it down and rather than just simply having a, a single large residential scheme of 250 units, you break these down into much smaller um, micro communities. You can re recreate the, the terraced house feeling than if you'd lived on a, on a terraced street before. But typically, you know, these sort of, you get to know the three houses to your left, to your right, and perhaps the three or four opposite. And that creates a small community. And that's what we're trying to recreate here. So it's just an example of some of the innovation that we're, we're trying to apply to the residential aspect. And we think has a genuine, will have a genuine impact on the, on the, uh, the health and well-being of the people who live there. And that's where the well, third building works. So the third building we're creating, there's a third building called a shed, which is intentionally designed as a for SMEs to have space. It was like your first opportunity into business or if you're trying to scale up. And also an opportunity to kind of, we, we, we create this place where we call them show and share space. So you can actually make something there, show it off and then potentially sell it from there as well. So I think you asked earlier on, Christine, about what are the ingredients of a mixed-use place. I think for us, it's that flexibility of space. At MK Gateway, what you're getting is startup, scale-up, and actually grade-A office space. So you've got opportunity to be in that, be in MK Gateway, 
almost at different levels. Um, you've got, you can live there in a real community that's bustling and it's been designed to create proper community. So every time you go up three floors, you've got 50 or 60 people that you can have a chat with, you know, have coffee, you know, you can have an event together, you can have, you know, uh, a neighbor's party, whatever it is, and that's really great. But also the, the active public realm is intentionally curated for that, those collision points. You know, we've thought about where those points are that people, people are generally going to dwell and have a little chat or you might see people we know that all the and this goes right back to community engagement when we spoke to and listen to all everyone in the community whether it's big businesses like Santander or Red Bull who are in Milton Keynes to local residents who go to the you know kids in a local school those are the things that we heard we want community we want civic space we want places that we can see what other see what's happening you know to find out what's going on to start a business and all those ingredients are really important in a mixed use place because places don't places have to evolve and are flexible and so we've got to put all these ingredients into the mix curate them properly and make sure and they will work well together so for us there, there are a number of things that go into the mix but the curation is just is, is probably the most important part of what we do as well and i think that's quite well, important because it Oh, Sorry, I just, Sorry. I just, that's okay. I, I wanted to ask about, um, I mean, I think it's, it, it's, it's so important, this community um, cohesion and this kind of idea of these um, collision points as you put them, but many of them rely on retail spaces or, you know, kind of spaces that must be populated. And it's been a challenging time for retail. You know, how, how do you engage with your your retailers or or think about these spaces and their, I guess, viability? Really, do they rely on independent traders to kind of survive, or is it something that you look at, you know, subsidizing if they are struggling, or you know, what are the models for sustainable retail within the mix? The most important thing about retail is giving people plenty of customers. I mean, it's as simple, it's simple as that. And again, it's one of the benefits of mixed-use development where you can have demand for a cafe in the morning, during the week, at lunchtime, after work, in the evenings, um, at the weekend. And it's our job, we feel our job is, as mixed-use uh, um, placemakers is to make sure that there is that um, a stream of demand and then to make sure we put the right retailers in there in there that are going to attract that type of custom um, and I, I like he's absolutely right I think one of the key things is around flexibility uh, flexibility of use flexibility of space um, it's allowing space to adapt over time because we won't get everything right the first time uh, it will change it will evolve so making sure that there is that ability to do that because if you get those mix of uses right they have really Know, significant sort of synergistic benefits to everything. You know, the residents will enjoy living there more. The office uh, occupiers will find it easier to attract uh, people to work there because there'll be a buzz and vibe about the place. It has. We've already talked about some of the environmental and sustainable sustainable benefits of doing all those things. So I, I, I think that that's that's crucial. Milton Keynes has a lot going for it. One of the things it doesn't have going for it is a long Victorian history um, with um, railway arches and other sort of um, characterful buildings simply didn't exist. It was, a, it was farm land in the Victorian times. So one of the things we're trying to do with, with the shed building, which uh, Elida referred to, is to try and recreate that, um, that sort of cultural and, and uh, young enterprise 
um, approach that you tend to see in lots of industrial cities within railway arches. So those are our sort of replacement railway arches to give people the opportunity to to experiment and and create their own businesses and hopefully move from that into a, into the next onto the next level. Do the people who live in Milton Keynes or um, are kind of drawn into that, do you think that they're they're buying into the aesthetics of Milton Keynes? They're like, fine, that it's not a bunch of Victorian terraces, or is there a part of them that kind of wishes Milton Keynes was somehow different? Is there is there a sense of um, of pride in the contemporary architecture there? Absolutely. I think um, Milton Keynes is, as I think Barry said, it's a young city. It's only 53 years old, I think. So a lot of people are attracted to the place because it's brilliantly connected. It sits within the Cambridge and Oxford knowledge arc, but it's 30 minutes into London, another 40 minutes or 45 minutes into Birmingham. So you can get everywhere. It's surrounded by amazing parkland. I mean, Campbell Park, which is 10 minutes from our site, is about what? 25, 30 acres of park, beautiful parkland. So you've got this amazing balance of being in the middle of a bustling city, big businesses, you know, lots going on, central financial district within Milton Keynes, but you're literally minutes away from wonderful, uh, you know, green space. I think that real balance is what people love. Um, yeah, Milton, and, and there's a, a, a significant amount of civic pride in, in Milton Keynes. Um, you get busloads of students from all around the world coming to Milton Keynes to see how it was designed. It was a planned city and it was designed intentionally. And so people want to understand how that's working and, and how it's also been evolved over time. And we are part of that evolution. So we're, we're you know, even our architects, we're super excited because they got to you know work on something that's relatively young and and also be part of its ongoing evolution it'd be interesting to hear about i mean you've you've chosen a very big brand named architect um in in this case so it's you know uh, who have long had statements around um the kind of projects they'll do and and the way that they run their office and richard rogers having um a, a long history uh, of involvement in urban planning and um, in, uh, in, in an interest in the human aspects of, of city making. Um, but, but when you're thinking about working with architects or uh, designers, what, what is it that you're looking for in uh, a practice? And also, um, you know, where do you think design fits into uh, placemaking or the, the, the branding or identity of uh, mixed use places? Design is clearly integral to to all of all of that. Um, good architecture, I think, is is so important. Good architecture, of course, means different things to different people. You know, the RSHP approach tends to be you know, very different to a lot of more traditional architects. Um, we think that fits very well within the Milton Keynes context, and they've brought a massive amount of energy and ideas to that. That's what we look for. We're looking for uh, passion. We're looking for creativity. We're looking for fresh ideas. We're looking for um, um, flexibility of thinking. Um, um, and perhaps overall, uh, overriding everything else is, a, is the need for a story. Ultimately, you know, development, placemaking is about creating a story for a place. And I think that's something that RSHP excel at. And it's something that really applied to MK Gateway. So creating a reason why this scheme will be 
success for a reason why people will be talking about MK Gateway for a very long time is something that really RSHP have really helped us to turn into reality and to turn into something that I think is now starting to resonate. And you asked previously about you know, how, how has it been received within Milton Keynes. I think Milton Keynes is very excited about it, but I think this will uh, maybe sound a little bit pompous to say so, but I think this will really help to heighten the perception of, of Milton Keynes in the whole of the south of the UK. Um, we deliberately set out here to create a development that wasn't just building on what Milton Keynes is, but was actually meant to be best in class for the whole of the south of the UK. So in terms of, both in terms of the residential and the office, I'm not sure you'll go and visit another better. The intention is to the residential will be built to rent because we think that's a really good way of of, of setting an anchor for a a new site, a new location, and getting a lot of like-minded people together on the early stage of, of, of a new place. Um, and we think it will set a new bar for the quality of built to rent developments. And I think on the office side, again, this 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 focus around the central atrium and, and the ability to, to um, access and see all the different spaces, but still have your own private space to fall back on with you know, external terraces and very strong ESG credentials, which we know all office occupiers, investors and investors are now very much focused on, we think will really help to put Milton Keynes on the map. And as Elida said, it's, it's firmly between Oxford and Cambridge has sometimes been overshadowed um, in those arc discussions. I think this is a, a part of the opportunity for, for, for Milton Keynes to start punching its weight. And we know that it is recognised as being a major successful city already by the likes of Santander, who have you know, relocated their, their, their UK head office to, to Milton Keynes and are building a fantastic new tech-focused um, hub um, just up the road from us. And by the likes of you know, Red Bull, yeah. sort of busy winning the Formula One World Championship and, and, and with some of the best tech in, in the world just, just up the road. So um, we think Milton Keynes has a fantastic opportunity to, to continue to, to uh, uh, grow on its, its existing success. And I was going to say, design and architecture also has a crucial role in helping to address some of the bigger life issues that um, we sometimes forget. You know, one of the big, big, big challenges we grapple with when we're creating new places is how do we address health and well-being? How do we make sure that people are healthier? You know, we spend a lot of our times in a lot of our time inside buildings, so those buildings have to make us feel better. They can't add to to the problem. How do we address long-term environmental sustainability? How do we make sure we're, you know, maximizing biodiversity? Um, loneliness issues, you know, how do we make sure we're creating communities so people don't feel more lonely or mental health issues aren't um, exacerbated by the buildings or the place we're creating? So I think design, design and architecture has such a crucial role in that, hence why we make sure that we take our design team along on that journey with us. They understand all those challenges and we're not, always going to find a solution but what we're not doing is adding to the problem we're starting to put the things in place to make sure we're addressing those so yeah, I think that's that's also a crucial role that we shouldn't forget about what architecture does for for our schemes. I want to touch on sustainability uh, you mentioned energy use um, before you mentioned kind of retaining um, existing fabric uh, in with a view to reducing 
um, you know, carbon vandalism, I often call it, uh, of demolition. I think it'd be interesting to, to ask, you know, we have a new IPCC report out um, with some f fairly doomsday predictions. Do you feel the government is supporting developers in, uh, you know, the changes that they need to see, especially when it comes to demolition? You know, there's been lots of talk about VAT reform. Um, are there other major moves that you want to see? And, you, you know, one of the things I like about Socius is that you are not ambiguous when it comes to your purpose and your values, um, but it is a difficult thing when you're building new, um, uh, you know, uh, whether you are making the right calls for sustainability. So I guess uh, perhaps a question about where you are on that um, uh, environmental journey. So uh, a number of questions all tied up, I think, in that. Um, could the government be doing more to support developers and developments that are really trying to exceed you know the environmental um, guidelines i think yes is the answer but equally we as a associates don't really believe that we need the government to establish what our moral compass should be uh you know i, th I think you know we we um have our own ideas on what that should be and, and we're not in the habit of simply blaming you know the the the, the government or, or the planning authorities for, for not being able to do stuff i think the private sector has plenty of opportunity to make change if it wishes to um and and i think that's what we're trying to do here and you know we should be because the, the current guidelines probably don't always help what we're doing but there's nothing to stop us from trying to exceed those or trying new things. Now, one of the things we're really keen to try to do at Milton Keynes is, you know, is the use of uh, battery storage, for example, um, um, in terms of more efficiently uh, um, allocating energy usage over the course of a day or a week. And there's some, some ideas like that that you, know, you can certainly do within the existing guidelines. So we're, we're sort of exploring ways in which we can we could do, uh, do things like that. So... Uh, could could the government be government be doing more? Yes, but I think it's beholden on the private sector to be leading this. We don't need to be pulled by the tail. We shouldn't need to be pulled by the tail. Um, there's plenty of things that we could be doing to make sure that we you know we are addressing these issues. We we should all have our own be holding ourselves accountable. And I think we see our role as associates as trying to keep pushing and nudging the benchmark and the bar a little bit higher because then what we tend to find is suddenly you set a new benchmark that other people need to follow. Where are the challenges for you when it comes to the environmental agenda? Oh, there are lots of them. Uh, um, uh, I mean, challenges in lots of different ways. I think we know that you know, embedded carbon is 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 a major issue um, with um, with developments. We do try and retain buildings where we can. Um, at your point about no carbon hooliganism or vandalism, I think is absolutely right. So we need to, we need to be doing more of that if we can. Um, we know that you know current regulations restrict us from doing a lot of things that we'd like to do um, in terms of you know for example the use of, of, of timber, obviously heavily restricted at the moment in the residential sector as everybody knows. Uh, and so that, that that's a, another aspect, the supply chain. Is a, is a massive issue for us. So when we look at sort of mod, more modern or more sustainable technologies, uh, including, including the use of alternatives to concrete and things like that, the, the reality is for a developer like us that's 
building large schemes, the supply chain simply isn't there to give us no give us and our investors the confidence always to to be able to pursue those. So again, if you're looking for government intervention, I think it's in the support of a number of those supply chain aspects um, um, that would really help. Um, and equally, we know there are some issues around insurance, um, again, for a lot of these. So uh, simple things I, I would be you know, encouraging the government to focus on would be in, in supporting the supply chain and in providing some form of framework to allow more innovative developers to use some of this technology and not be stimmied by, you know, fairly sort of old fashioned uh, insurance and, and funding restrictions that, that, that sometimes can exist. I think also things like, you know, we, we want to be a fossil fuel free developer. We don't want to use gas on any of our schemes, but actually sometimes planning regulation requires us to support, a, uh, uh, for example, district heat system that is gas fired. So whether or not we really want to, we are hampered because actually we get you know, if we're not going to get planning unless we do that. So we've got to build flexibility in hoping that at one at some point that will be switched from gas to electric. But for as a start of our scheme, we'll have to support gas. So sometimes planning regulations, what's the some local authorities are keen and they are they they want to, they've got sustainability um, strategies that say they will be completely fossil fuel free. The reality is completely different when we get there. When you say fossil fuel free, is that include materials or is that about how your schemes are heated? It's about he gas heating, etc. It's really good to hear that, uh, those challenges, because I think they are shared ones. <laughs> and I think it's also just um, really refreshing to have a conversation about um, things that are works in progress, you know, um, and I think uh, for many of the councils too, probably with district heating was the best choice yep. for a long time. Mm. Um, and it, it's kind of um, feels as though there is a lot of catching up to do um, in terms of the agenda. You've talked about being brownfield developers. That's one of the things that you um, describe yourself as. Is that an environmental choice? Um, or is that just the kind of site that you appeals to you because it, it tends to be city centre? It's all of the above. I mean, I, so I, I, I don't understand why anybody's doing any greenfield development at all. I just simply don't understand it. There's plenty of brownfield um, land available. We don't need any more. Um, it just needs more creative ways of addressing those. Uh, we're also a, a mixed-use developers, and frankly, that works better in, in central locations. So we're not only brownfield, but we tend to be city centre focused because I think they're the most exciting places. And maybe that's just a personal preference, but that, that those are the places that I think work best for mixed use. Um, and so it is, it is partly environmental. It's partly about having a positive, positive impact outside of the boundaries of our scheme. So you know, we would like to think that all of the areas around our scheme will improve but through what we are delivering, of course, if you're in a city centre, you could the the um, the extent of the impact that you can have is that much greater because you're surrounded by other developments and and uh, other other sites. So that's an important aspect. And the final piece for me is around transport, which we talked about previously. And no, you can have a much more sustainable, lower transport environment in 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 sort of built up brownfield locations than you can if you're sat on the outskirts of a town or city. 
we've talked about policy and politics. We've talked about developers in the profession. And I kind of want to go back to that point about listening and, and people. Um, and what are they telling you that they want going forward? Has it um, has it changed? Is it changing? Uh, but what is it you see that they are demanding of uh, new places to live, work or uh, play? It's interesting because I don't think it, it changes that much. People fundamentally want a safe uh, community for them to live and work. I think we have seen the blurring of lines between where home and work is, but I think that doesn't that doesn't necessarily change what we deliver. Or I think, as I mentioned earlier, when all the ingredients what we put in are flexible, so we can just flex those and evolve those as they change over time. But fundamentally, people want safe places. They want places that they can, you know, they can grow up, grow, grow their families in. They can enjoy themselves, and that actually they can they can be part of a community. So I think the fundamentals are, are right. And if I asked you or ten other people, they'll probably say very similar things. So uh, I, I think building on that, it's been really interesting in, during the, the pandemic, hearing some of the knee-jerk reaction to, to you know, what happened. And I think there's one word that we always think about when we talk about the places that we're creating, and that's experience. And, uh, you know, everybody talked about the experience economy four or five years ago. And, and, and then suddenly during the pandemic, people started commenting around efficiency, and, and, oh, look how efficient I am if I work from home. And, and look how efficient it is if the shopping gets delivered to me. And look how efficient it is if I actually order my food from the restaurant on a screen and have it delivered by somebody who doesn't even speak to me. It's, these aren't sustainable. Um, people are, thrive and society thrives on great experiences. Um, and as a developer and a placemaker, we need to be creating great experiences um and and i think people started to forget that over the pandemic and and to their detriment i think a lot of these restaurants will really struggle when they 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 remove the human interface um from going to pick up your lunch and i'm just not sure people are going to be very excited about that and frankly if that's what's going to happen you may as well order it on your on your um um uh, on your phone have it delivered to your desk because the experience is gone and when you lose experience you lose brand when you lose brand, you lose sales, and when you lose sales, you go bust. Um, and I think it's um, uh, as a developer, we need to be constantly thinking about how do we create a strong experience. And if we can create a strong experience, we'll create a strong brand. And if we create a strong brand, we will attract occupiers uh, and residents. Uh, and that's how you make successful places. I think that just leaves me to thank you both very much for uh, sharing your plans for Milton Keynes with me today and um, some of your wider ambitions for, um, for Socius. Uh, so thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Our podcast is produced by Simon Mercer with music by Forte. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thedeveloperuk. You can sign up to our newsletter on our website, thedeveloper.live, and check out our live events on making more sustainable and equitable places at festivalofplace.co.uk. Thanks a lot. See you next time.